Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. You know, one of the topics that's always fascinated me is, uh, it seems as for as long as we've had education, we've had technology in education, or, or the attempt to leverage some sort of innovation to completely reinvent the way we, we prepare kids. Uh, but what have been some of the, I guess, the interesting carcasses along the way? Like what, are, <laughs> what, are, what are some technologies that seem state-of-the-art then, but now seem dreadfully archaic? Yeah, yeah. So I like to break technology into sort of two buckets in, when it comes to education. Technologies that have really transformed the, te- the education experience, let us do something we couldn't ever do before. And then there's this other category, the carcasses, as you say, right? The category of technologies where all it did was duplicate on a screen something that used to be uh, on paper, right? right? It just digitizes a traditional practice. So here are several examples I can give you. Just give you maybe two of my favorites. Um, One of them is this idea of digital textbooks. There's all this excitement about digital textbooks. You don't have to carry your textbooks around. You can have this (laughs) digital version of it. But if you look at it, all it was was these you know, scanned versions, it was a PDF of what used to be in this uh, this big piece of paper and didn't actually change anything, didn't do anything. And so when people were like, why, why, are, why are kids excited about adopting these new digital textbooks? Well, it's because it was just the same old boring textbook on a screen. One other example I'll give you is uh, there was a huge effort to put digital whiteboards into schools, right? And there's these whiteboards that you have, but instead of using chalk, you use a pen and it shows up on a digital screen instead. And and again, people thought we spent millions of dollars. Why isn't this changing the world? And then you step back and you're like, because it actually doesn't do anything different. It's the same exact experience. It just has pixels on the screen instead of chalk on the wall. And prints it out on like fax paper. That's yes, yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> right, right. So, so those are some of the things. Anytime you have a technology that all it does is duplicate a traditional process, kind of doomed for failure. I'm still in therapy about that frightening VCR they used to roll out for sex education yeah. class. <laughs> they put a creepy 70s video on. So whatever process that was replacing, I don't want to know. Yeah, don't even. Um, I'm, ha- I'm having a cup of tea with uh, Richard Collada, who's the CEO of uh, IST, uh, or IST. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're hanging out today because I'm speaking at their amazing conference on the future of uh, technology and education. Uh, but we're here to talk all things education in the coming AI world, aren't yeah. we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of the books that really left a profound influence on me uh, growing up was The Diamond Age. Mm. And uh, the protagonist uh, being a young girl who finds some kind of pre-Kindle Kindle, Kindle, uh, which essentially gives her this kind of highly personalized uh, education experience, which then transforms her place in society. I think it actually influenced Jeff Bezos because... Uh, even the word Fiona, which is the name of the character, is mm-hmm. buried deep in the operating system of the Kindle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the idea of personalized or adaptive learning has been around for a long time. But what is it really? And and, yeah. and, and I guess, what does it mean today? Yeah, I think it's important to uh, to say what it is, but also what it's not. Right. Um, so, uh, so what the idea of personalized learning is... We all, we know that everybody has different needs when it comes to learning. There are different uh, interests that we have. There are different skills that we have. There are some learning concepts that for whatever reason you learned better than I did on one day, maybe because you weren't at school one day when I was, or maybe because it's just a concept that's more difficult for you. But whatever those reasons are, it ends up with what we call jagged learning. Right. It means that we are all at different levels all the time. 
And yet, when we go into the traditional education system, we don't treat people like they have these differences. We teach them all the same. And it's kind of the craziest thing that we do because we, basically we, we have a choice that we've made is we've said we could either hold the learning constant, have everybody reach 100% and allow the approach and the schedule and all that to vary. Or we could hold the schedule and the approach <laughs> constant and allow the learning to vary. Why on earth we've chosen that one? I don't know. So everybody goes through the exact same classes, the exact same days. And what varies at the end is who learned. Some get 100%, some fail. We go, oh, man, that's too bad. Moving on to lesson two. But we've optimized for efficiency rather it, it, than outcomes. Absolutely. And in fairness, in fairness, some of that is because we did not have the technology to manage that. I used to be a classroom teacher. I did the same thing. Part of the reason I did that is because I was teaching six classes in, in high school. Managing that without some tools is incredibly burdensome. This isn't just technology. Some people have criticized education as being a, a factory model that mm -hmm. was designed to a kind of pacify and train workers to you know deal with bells and shifts i think sal khan was you know one of the famous protagonists of this yeah, yeah. Of this story is that actually accurate or, or is it you know is is there just a logic of schools that follow scale and and, and, and it isn't really the order that's the problem. Yeah, I think there's there's some of both, right? I mean, it is true that that is some of the origins of schools, but there's been a lot of evolution in in learning, which is which is really exciting. Uh, in part because there's a lot of creativity in the teacher workforce. Teachers are some of the most creative people I've ever seen. Um, and as I mentioned a second ago, we're starting to see some tools that can superpower uh, teachers. The, the tricky part, though, here is there are some tools that really are enabling and others that can, uh, you know, almost push us in the wrong direction, which actually gets to the, the what personalized learning is not. Right. And, and that is there are some there are some software where you can sit a kid down in front of a screen and it will ask them a question and then they will hit next and it will adapt to the next screen and they can just click next all day through these through these questions that some people mistakenly think is personalized learning. Right. It's not. It's just multi-path, it's, multiple choice. It multi <laughs> it's exactly what it is. Multi-path, multiple choice. We sometimes call it adaptive learning. That sounds better. Right. And there's some good uses for that. If you're drilling for a test, if you need to memorize some stuff, that's great. But if that were all of what your learning experiences would be, it would be painful. Yeah. And it's not the same as truly personalized learning. It sounds like learning. a good way of testing whether someone deserves a driving license, but not preparing them for life. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's an example of personalized or adaptive learning done right? Yeah. So when it's done right... It is a series of learning activities aligned to individual student needs. Doesn't mean they're all working by themselves. I was in a school recently where they were doing a great job of personalized learning in Rhode Island. And in this school, there were students that at a given moment were grouping together. And there was some software that was helping them. They weren't, the students weren't using the software. The software was helping the teacher say, hey, this group of kids, you know, they, they might do well over here working together on an activity. And you, as the teacher, you might want to work over here with this other group that's struggling on something else. So the software was actually in the background. Right. It's almost like, uh, like air traffic control software, if you could imagine that, for, uh, for teachers to help know where and how students are working well. But, but here's the catch. It doesn't just tell the teacher. It also shows the students. So at any given moment, the student can say, how am I doing on these skills? Where do I need some extra help? And they can, on their own, start making decisions about where they need to be doing a little extra work, where they may be able to move a little faster. Because it does raise the broader question of, you know, in, in a world we have more sophisticated artificial intelligence driving education mm -hmm. and learning, what is the role of the human teacher? Yeah. Like, what, 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 
you know, if you see, if you see this happening in, in the medical field, yep. like uh, it's starting to become clearer, like pattern recognition machines are better at, but human interaction yeah. for doctors. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a, a great question. And unfortunately, we spend a lot of teacher time now doing things that really aren't good use of their time. And by the way, not what they signed up to do in the first place. Right. So a lot of you know, grading, a lot of finding materials. Finding materials, come on, can we help accelerate that so that the teachers can use their time for what they're best at, which is things like having conversations one-on-one -on -one with students, pushing their thinking through giving them examples or gently leading them down paths that they may not have gotten to otherwise. That's the great role of a teacher. And so this idea of finding materials or giving, you know, grading stuff, that's all stuff that we can hand off to machines to allow teachers to really do what they're good at. Where are we at in terms of machines being able to really assess competency and skills? I mean, you know, for some of the STEM subjects, I mean, you either get a problem right or not. But, but other aspects of learning, it's a bit more nuanced. Mm. I mean, you almost run the risk of a machine having a a kind of a too clumsy or low resolution version of what right. capability is. That's right. And and I think that is that is getting better. In fact, we're starting to see now in some of our, you know, in some standardized testing, um, machines actually used to grade essays. Right. Which had not ever happened before. But I completely agree with you. It's still pretty clunky. It's still like, you know, those old pixelated pictures that we used to see when the web was first coming out. That's kind of like the... Well, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting one. I, I mean... You could see how a machine could be good at identifying an above average or below average yep. or terrible. Yeah. But but maybe the maybe beyond obvious mistakes, a brilliant essay and yep. a terrible essay have more in common than than they don't. So it's funny you say that because some people have actually shown that in some ways, right? That right. The, the structure of something that's very creative is actually very similar to something that's totally disastrous, right? right. Um, so, so I think what's what's interesting and, and the way that I think of, of technology in terms of assessment can be very helpful is not trying to make the decision for a human, but try to tee up a better decision for the human. So to go through a, a document, for example, and say, here's an interesting construction that I see of these words. And then that right. tees up for me to look at it. Is it really creative? Is or it is it somebody that makes, it makes no sense because they're using words that don't go together? But, but just allowing, helping me know where to focus as a human on a whole lot of information that I'm getting, particularly as, as, a, as an educator, yeah. that's a really valuable service that technology can provide. Uh, kids who are going into the education system today are essentially going to come out in 2030 which is, I mean, people talked about 2020 being the future, but I mean, now that's so close, we're, we're kind of now thinking what the next 10 years would be like. What, what do you think the education system is going to need to be in, in the next 10 years to prepare people for that dramatic difference in, in the workforce? There's certainly going to be a whole bunch of conversations that we need to have, that we need to prepare students for, that we're not having today. Yeah. So, so, so let me give one example. We're just talking about AI. Um, there are a whole set of skills that students today are going to need in order to thrive in jobs of the future. We had a conversation with uh, some folks at General Motors, and they said, we are building cars. The cars we're designing today are basically drivable AI machines, yeah. right, that have a steering wheel now. Maybe they won't even have a steering wheel down the road. And they came to us and they said, we have a workforce shortage problem. I said, well, that's great. That's not really our problem. You know, good luck. And they said, no, no, you don't understand. We have a problem 10 years out because we're looking at what the students are learning today in schools about AI. And in order to have them be ready in 10 years to design and build these cars, there are conversations they should already be having that we're not. 
And so that led us down an interesting path. We actually started looking around to say, well, is, is, is there any program, is there any materials to help teachers know how to talk about AI with their students? There's nothing. We can find anything. A lot of stuff for, for tech people, if you want to build your own AI system, nothing for teachers. So we actually partnered with General Motors and we built the first, the only, I think to this point, class. It's an online course for teachers to come in and it helps step them through what do they need to be teaching their kids about AI? When I was going through school in the 80s, right. uh, I remember learning basic and making a robot spin around, a robot sure. turtle, but that was about the extent of it. So, so what is the... You know, what is the 21st century version of this today? Like, what, what did you end up putting in the curriculum? Yeah. So, so interestingly enough, a lot of people, um, you would think it's very, very technical, right? Lots of code. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there is some of that. It's important to understand some basic concepts of what we call computational thinking, right? It's not necessarily um, exact coding. Uh, but what, what we've heard from industry and what we're seeing is coding, specific languages change so fast it's not teaching kids to code as much as teaching them to think about how do you solve problems differently when you're working with machines. So, so, so some of them are, are, are simple questions like how do you know when, when you have to program ethical decision making into a device, what a car. You may be in a situation where a, a, a driverless car has to decide. Classic trolley problem. It's the classic trolley problem. Do I do something that takes somebody's life or somebody else's life? Who am I loyal to? How, how do you program that? Those are, those are ethical conversations that you need to be thinking about long before you ever worry about what, what coding language you're going to be using. Right. So you're teaching kids trolley problems? So we are actually talking <laughs> about how do you think about using AI when, when it's uh, as, a, as a tool for solving big problems. I mean, look, I, I often uh, say the, the language of future problem solving is, is code. And so we need to be teaching kids computational thinking, not because we want all of them to go be developers or programmers for Google or wherever. Some will, that's fine. But every one of us needs to be able to think in code enough to be able to solve problems. What, what are some other examples of computational thinking for kids that isn't explicitly programming, yeah. but is you know, more analytical? Let me, let me tell you a really fun one that I saw recently. So these were uh, kindergartners. So super young, right? These were just, just getting started. And they were teaching um, sorting. You know, the basic concept of how can you sort things. Right. So they had the, the classroom. You remember in your kindergarten classroom, they have these like square tiles of different colors in the room. And so they handed out the kids a different number. Just randomly handed out a little sign with a number on it. And they lined them up in random order on one side of the room. And then they gave them a rule, right? So they're teaching them how rules can sort data. So they say, here's your rule walk across the room and every time you bonk into another kid you look at the number and whosoever number is bigger goes to the right <laughs> go right and so the kids you know bonk 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 across this chaos across the room as kindergartners are going across and then magically on the other side of the room they're in order one to thirty and we've just taught them how your email is sorted alphabetically right or how calendars can sort by dates right. we've just given them that concept without ever touching code <laughs> It's now in their head that you can take a mess of data, give it a rule, and have it transform into something else. And, and it's not such a big leap to then understand what an algorithm is. Of course. And then it's not such a big leap to learn a specific programming language right. because they know the concepts. Now they're just learning, you know, mechanical, how do I make it happen? And suddenly you've got preschools who know what an NP-hard problem is. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it, it, it is interesting because, uh, I mean... Uh, even coding and programming will be automated to some extent. Yeah. So it's that 
almost that knowledge of statistics and analytics that, that become even superior to the coding language itself. And that's my worry. I, I love our, uh, our you know, momentum that I think we're getting around teaching all kids to code. But I worry a little bit that it's not really the coding skill. No. It's again, we talk about the computational thinking skill. Right. It's how do you conceptualize what you can do with it. And particularly, I mean, the most, you look at the, the devices that I have right here in my pocket. The, the phone that I have, our smartphones, have about 120 million times the computing power of the computer that took the first spaceship to the moon, right? Just think about that. Huge amounts of computing power. What's holding us back is the clunkiness of the user interfaces. You ever tried to do a mail merge? I mean, you know, you want to rip your hair out. It's very clunky interfaces to a whole lot of very powerful computing power. As we start to be able to shift away from these clunky interfaces to, say, talking and explaining with voice what we want it to do or, or with other actions, all of a sudden we're going to have just an enormous amount of computing power at our fingertips that we haven't had access to before, even though it's sitting inside our phones. Although that does, that does start to put the responsibility and the onus on the, on the person to be able to know how to use that interface effectively. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, the, the, the voice one's interesting because kids are not just growing up with screens, they're growing up with smart speakers. Yeah. So, so there is a kind of a natural tendency to be able to be able to phrase a question in a way that gets a, a good answer. Mm -hmm. That's right. I mean, I, I have four kids and it's um, fascinating for me to watch how much more facile they are at getting information by speaking to Siri or, you know, a, 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 a Amazon or whatever, to whatever smart speaker they, they have at the moment than when they actually sit down and have to type into a, a, a browser, into a, a search engine. So if we, if we were to look into 2030, how do you think a school will be different? I mean, do you think the basic hardware will be the same? I mean, what, what things do you think will be radically different? Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we'll see that's very different is just the, the roles of teachers and students. Right. Um, it is still very, very much a, uh, there's a very defined role of students are here to have information given to them. And teachers are there to give the information. That, I think, will be largely gone, and there will be a blend of people that are co-working, co-collaborating on trying to understand problems. That's one big shift, which I think is really critical. Do you think we'll still have a grade system? I hope it looks very different. I think it will be very important to still measure competency, right. but I think this archaic grouping into like a letter grade or a, or a year grade, you know, I'm in a fifth grader, I'm a, I think that's a structure that we will largely lose. Do you think cohorts are still important? I think we, we know that learning is an inherently social activity. Right. So working together with other people is critical. Right. But those cohorts don't have to be the same for a whole year or no. for even a break. Or, or, or across all subjects. Or right. across all subjects or based entirely on physical location. Right. Why can't I be working in collaboration? And, and I think we will see this in, in 30 years. Why won't I be working in collaboration with teams of students from all kinds of other places around the world? Right. Especially as language is no longer a barrier as we get more and more built-in translation through, through these AI tools. So potentially we'll have um, more adaptive tools, we'll have more data, we'll have more fluidity and flexibility in the way we're teaching people and grouping them. Are there any other things that you think might be different? You know, I think one of the other things that would be different is, at least I hope it will be different, is I think there will be a, a, a blur between what is learning and what is life and what is work. Right. Right, right now those are very distinct separate things. And I think in the future, it will be impossible to distinguish when I'm 
learning, when I'm at school, when I'm just out having my life, and when I'm at work. Because all of those activities will blur, will be constantly learning, will have to to survive. And at the same time, the stuff that we're doing at at school will be much more relevant, much more tied to the things that we care about because it's going to be personalized. So it'll be less like school when we're at school and it'll be more like school when we're at work or elsewhere. I think, yeah. And I think it'll just be (laughs) totally these concepts, these weird concepts of like, now we're at school and now we're at work and now we're, I think that will largely go away. Well, there are certain patterns of behavior and, and collaboration in the workforce that we probably need to do a better job of preceding at school, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned these sort of uh, team collaboration, team problem solving. I yeah. mean, the group project is not really the same as as, as what you see in, in, in the workforce. Right. right. Uh, but, but, but it is interesting because um, you're starting to see this uh, dynamic of students that are coming up through our K-12 system being very frustrated as they get into higher ed because it is still an, an older model, right? So, so it, it, there's actually an incredible amount of innovation happening in our K-12 schools right now. Right. Unbelievable. So you have these kids that are now working on, you know, they're working in collaboration with different kids in their school. They're working on these projects. They're doing this personalized learning that we're talking about. And then they show up at college and it's like they've been time warped back 20 years. That? I think there is just a long, there's a bit of a delay, as we've seen, you know, higher ed for all of its great qualities is not super fast at transforming into new models. But the frustration that these students are feeling as they show up at colleges is forcing them, one of two things will happen. They will either be forced to change the model or they'll be gone. Is that because a lot of colleges have been set up to, you know, either the guild model of uh, essentially winnowing people down into like a little club or or sort of an official certification rather than necessarily providing another agile adaptive learning environment? I mean, I think it's a misalignment between the service being provided and the service that is being expected. Look, it's a classic user experience problem, right? right? One of the activities we do when we're working with user experience, if, if you've ever done this activity like on a website or something, and you show a website and you say, don't click this button, but tell me what you think will happen when you click it. And then after that, you click it and you see, did it line up with what they thought, right? That's the problem with higher ed. So in higher ed, you have, I was, I was speaking recently to some provosts, some leaders of higher ed, and I was talking about these new skills that we need to teach these students. And, and somebody said, well, wait a minute. Are you just saying that our only purpose is just help these kids get a job? And I said, you know, I'm not even going to, I'm not going to get into that battle. <laughs> but, but I'm worried that you think your job is to just be the, the givers of knowledge and they're there because they're expecting to get a job. I said, here's what we're going to test it. We're going to walk into any one of your, you know, Econ 101 or English 101. And I'm going to say, anybody who's here who doesn't expect to get a job out of this, you raise your hand. If you're here just to just to gain the knowledge that your professor has in their mind, great. And if you don't think that you want a, a job out of this, fine. If that's the case, if that's what they're expecting, we're doing great. But if not, if they're expecting to get a job out of this experience that they've spent $50,000 on, now we have a misalignment. And so either you can change to meet their need or just warn them ahead of time. You know, maybe do like a Surgeon General's warning on the website that says, <laughs> warning, we don't care about you getting that's, a job. That's that's deceptively framed, though, because, you know, sometimes even if we're trying to prepare people for a job, the educator's view of what's required for that job may be very different to what's actually required oh, in, sure. in the market itself. Sure. Which is why which is why you can't do it without pulling people in from industry and, and again, blurring those lines. Yeah. And, and it, it may even be that 
you know, you need more generalists rather than specialists. So, so actually the, the kind of random foray into arts and literature and philosophy might be more useful for trolley problems. And... So I recently gave a talk on why coding should be required for all humanities majors. Right. Right. And it was not... And vice versa. And vice versa. Right, right. <laughs> and the point was there is a depth of knowledge that we are lacking in the tools that we're building because all of these people that are studying philosophy and humanities and history aren't plugging in. And so we're building all these solutions without their knowledge and the solutions stink. Right. Or, or cause, or worse, cause major problems with society. Right. And so... Because they're designed by engineers. That's right. Who, who ask, you know, how do we build something, not should we build it? And, and one of the things that I said was interesting, because I was joking, I said, it's funny that I'm here talking to basically the students who study language, telling them that they are left out of the conversation because they don't speak the language of technology. One of the challenges is going to be that the pace of transformation is going to be very, very across the world across cities, even within cities in different schools. Mm -hmm. So uh, as parents try to prepare their kids for the world of 2030, if they don't feel like their schools are doing enough, like what do you think individual parents can do to, to really help their children be ready? I think one of the things that we need to think about is, uh, is really talking to our kids about what does it mean to be a, a good digital citizen? And what I mean by that are what are the skills that you need to be developing uh, to make sure you can engage in a world that is largely where, where our interactions with people are largely mediated through technology. Right. So, so um, you know, lots of times when we say digital citizenship, immediately what people think of is, is online safety. Right. right. They think of um, don't talk to predators. Don't talk to predators. Don't share your parents' credit card online. Don't right. be a jerk when you're online. Right. And this is meanwhile while their parents are taking pictures of all their kids and putting them on Instagram. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> and being a jerk to other people online sometimes. Right. So, but 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 here's the <clears throat> interesting thing: is um, that's an incredibly low bar. Hmm. Imagine if that was if we were talking about just normal citizenship, right? Yeah. Offline citizenship, if you will. And we said, all you have to do to live in our community is don't randomly beat people up on the road and don't steal things. You're good. Right? No, of course not. But that's the sort of low bar that we've come to accept in virtual spaces. And so I think one of the conversations that parents need to have with their kids is not just, yeah, don't, don't be mean to other people, of course, but how do, you, uh, how do you recognize truth from fiction? How do you engage respectfully in virtual spaces with people who have differing beliefs from you do? How do you use those tools, those digital tools, to be engaged in your community and be active in, uh, in, in government, in democracy? Th those are conversations that we've all had with our parents generally about the world that happens in the physical space, but we have not transferred that over to what that looks like in a virtual space. It's difficult too because the rules of digital etiquette are even more subjective than from previous. It's not like picking the right fork, sure, you know, or sending a thank you note. It's uh, it's it's very nuanced, very cultural, and mm -hmm. and actually, there's really no guidebook. That is the problem, and um, these are conversations that our parents never had to have with us. No. So we're going through, this is sort of the first, it's like the first shot at us trying to have all these conversations with the with kids and we're kind of bumbling through it. It's more than that though, because it's not just how you protect yourself and behave. Even the idea of a job and what becomes valuable is changing dramatically. And, you know, we're, how do we prepare kids for the fact that whatever job they have will be, changing constantly and, and even the concept of a profession 
uh, it's probably the first to be, you know, hideously outdated. Yeah. Um, you know, it's if we think we can prepare uh, our kids for a specific job or even a career, we're just—it's just impossible. Like that's 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 such sort of a, 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 a joke in in some ways. It forces us to think about the only valuable skill or the only skill that will still have value down the road is the ability to learn to learn. Hmm. So helping our, the, the one constant that we know is that our kids today will need to constantly, constantly be reinventing themselves and reinventing their skill sets. On, on the learning to learn, what are the technical versus mindset parts of that? I think that it's a great question. I think the the you know the mindset parts of it are just continually thinking about knowing how to ask a question and what to do with it when you have a question. And I guess you know curiosity, sure, and encouraging sure. people that this is a, sure. a relevant activity. And and also being um, strategic about where you go. This gets into the technical parts of it. Is so so I've noticed something. I've been taught that it's good to be asking questions when there's things that I don't understand. Now what do I do with that? Yeah. Uh, and, and this idea, well, you, you could Google it, right? You can get, sure. Uh, what else? Are there experts that I can reach out to because I have them at my fingertips through technology? Are there communities and virtual spaces that I can become part of and learn from? Right. Are there simulations that I can build? There's this whole idea of digital twins that we're talking about where you replicate whole buildings or whole planes or whole cities or even people and then use them as a way to test things out and experiment on what it would look like in the real world without having to mess up a building or something that I would never have access to do for safety right. reasons, right? Those are all the sort of technical pieces of saying, how do you learn to learn? And I guess at the top, there's kind of the, the meta version of this, which is, you know, what is knowledge and you know how, how how do different areas of knowledge coexist and interrelate and to be able to step outside your field essentially and, yes and I also think there's a tough question that we're going to need to ask which is what knowledge do I need to retain and what knowledge is it okay for me to purposely not bother memorizing because I know it will be available for me and I can use that space frankly to learn other things this is really this is a really good point because you know, when I was growing up, we were taught to learn facts. Uh, but not only is it useless memorizing facts in a time of Google, in, in some ways it would have been more important to learn to argue around the facts. Like facts are important that the way we present things, but being able to interrogate them, challenge them, weave them into a narrative, this is something we were not taught enough. It's right. And it's interesting. I think that has, it's evolved too into also um, being able to figure out what is a fact. So, so when I was a kid growing up and we were memorizing facts, it, it was black and white. Like, you, like these were the facts. You could memorize them or not, but these are all, these are all facts. Now, it's an interesting question. I, I never thought I would have to be asking, how do we know what a fact is? Right? And so that's a muscle memory that we have to be able to evolve to in order to survive as a society. We, we literally can't survive as a society if we can't distinguish truth from fiction. And so that's a whole skill set that we're going to have to be able to get better at, at developing. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.